0: From Chowell, this is Jackson Unpacked, our podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm your host, Hannah Mersbach. Coming up on today's show, members of a comedy group in Jackson find community and laughter in the world of improv. Being an
1: adult can be kind of lonely, and so this is a great way to be silly. It's rare as an adult to be silly, and it's so good for the soul.
0: And later, we'll hear how a new law may impact the elk antler shed hunting season in Wyoming by giving
2: locals a head start. You might see people who had previously been avoiding feed grounds or previously avoiding certain sites. Those people might be coming back in and kind of filling those gaps.
0: These stories and more coming up on Jackson Unpacked. The Wyoming legislative session is kicking off with hot topics surrounding the budget, property taxes, education, and LGBTQ rights. So, KOL is partnering with Wyoming Public Media to get up and personal this session. We now have two reporters dedicated to covering what's happening in Cheyenne. One of those journalists, Chris Clements, interviews Wildfile reporter Maggie Mullins and David Dudley, also with the state politics team, on the month-long budget session that's just getting started.
1: Timing is tight, and lawmakers obviously have lots to do. Maggie, you're a seasoned legislative reporter. What are the key things people are trying to follow along that they need to know?
3: Yeah, time is definitely limited. You know, they've just got 20 days, and those deadlines do come quickly so far. There's more than 200 bills that have been posted, so lawmakers already have a lot to sort through. Um, That said, there's only one bill that they... Absolutely, positively, they are constitutionally obligated to pass, and that is the budget bill. Lawmakers have the responsibility of crafting a two-year budget every even-numbered year, so here we are. One other thing to know about this session is there are rules that are unique to a budget session. For example, and this is a critical one to know, every bill besides the budget bill needs two-thirds support in an initial vote in the chamber where it's introduced. So in the House, that's 42 members. In the Senate, that's 21 members. And for better or for worse, that's also where we will uh, most certainly see uh, a lot of bills come to their end.
1: And what about the budget will lawmakers wrestle with the most?
3: In a lot of ways, the big question will be to save or to spend, which is, you know, similar to the last budget session um, in 2022, but also, you know, just last year when lawmakers crafted the the supplemental budget in 2023. In fact, it might be helpful to back up to 2022 because a lot of that is actually going to inform Um, the budgeting that will take place this year. So the last time lawmakers had to um, hash out a tier budget, mineral rebounds and stimulus funds had unexpectedly replenished state coffers after the pandemic had put Wyoming in some pretty dire straits. And while 2023 was more lucrative than state forecasters had predicted, uh, the long term is still expected to be volatile And I think that's going to set a lot of the tone. In fact, that was the tone of Governor Mark Gordon's budget recommendations. He made that very clear in his letter. In fact, he called on the state to live within our means. And because of that, you know, certain cuts in Gordon's eyes are back on the table. And that, you know, is particularly true when it comes to the Department of Health. And that's also an area where the Legislature and, and the governor are already sort of diverging a little bit. The The Joint Appropriations Committee, or what you'll hear referred to as the JAC, um, they voted to fully fund the Department of Health's uh, budget request, while Gordon, his proposal was about $20 million less than that. Last year, the governor and the legislature really landed on the same sort of fiscal note so it'll be interesting to see if they do that again this year you know of course it's worth mentioning that the freedom caucus is another part of this and and they have made it clear that they oppose governor gordon's budget recommendations they recently made that clear in an opinion piece they called his recommendations unaffordable and unsustainable um at the same time they didn't really clarify if they would prefer those dollars to be saved so that's another thing that remains to be seen
1: so, looking beyond the budget, what else seems to be the top priority?
3: Property taxes, in fact, residential property taxes will be uh, priority number two, just behind the budget. That's at least what leadership has said. Speaker of the House Albert Summers and Senate President Ogden Driscoll said that much in an in an op-ed last month, and this is really picking up where the last session left off. Property taxes have shot up in a lot of the state because home prices, or I should say home values, have also gone up. And lawmakers tried to provide some relief and some reform in the last session, but it's fair to say that almost no one was very satisfied with those results, including lawmakers. Uh, They had about a dozen bills. They landed on three. One of those um, expanded the refund program, and uh, the other two sort of laid the groundwork for some of these more ambitious reforms that they may take on down the road. So basically, they're going to try again. The Joint Revenue Committee also made property taxes its priority uh, in the off season or the interim. They settled, I think, on six different bills, including one to, once again, um, expand that, that refund program.
1: David, you've been looking into the draft property tax bills. Can you give us a brief taste of what changes are being proposed? Yeah, there are a slew of property tax bills that I'm looking at. One of the ones that's most interesting to me is House Bill 4, uh, which would expand a refund program meant to help homeowners pay their property taxes, and the way that that bill may impact education bills. It's interesting that the property tax bills, uh, you know, they seem like a win for homeowners across the state, uh, especially those on fixed incomes to help pay those taxes. But as I've been speaking with others, there's also some concern about the loss of local tax revenue, uh, which helps pay for public services like roads and, and police, you know, emergency care. Um, but they also help to pay for K-12 education, uh, and they provide subsidies to hospitals. So with all these various kind of proposals on the table, it sounds like compromise will be key. And that's not only true for property tax reform, but for anything lawmakers want to accomplish. Maggie, what are you hearing about lawmakers' ability to work together this session?
3: Yeah, that's that's actually something I'm really interested to watch, especially on the House side. And that's because, um, like I mentioned, we have this two-thirds rule on introduction, and while the 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 freedom caucus in the house side which is this uh one of the republican camps it's i would say the more hardline group of republicans in in the legislature they they don't have the majority in the house but they do have about 26 members which is enough if you do the math it's enough to block bills on introduction so they have this sort of newfound Veto power, so it'll be interesting to see how they use that. If they're judicious with that, if they're a little bit more lavish with that, because the other part of that is because they don't have the majority. That means they need the support of non-Freedom Caucus members. So, folks at the end of the day are truly going to have to work together if they're going to uh, get anything done. And and a lot of that will come down to the Republican Party, you know, being split between these. These two factions, there's the Freedom Caucus and there's the the more traditional Wyoming Caucus that recently formed in response, actually, to the Freedom Caucus. So it might spell gridlock. And in fact, there are some lawmakers that have also publicly said that they would be perfectly happy with gridlock. Uh, We heard that from Representative Mark Jennings. Um, So uh, it should be interesting Chris, I understand that you're going to be keeping an eye on wedge issue bills. So what can you tell us about that?
1: For sure. I mean, there's bills that regulate what students are taught in schools and that touch on issues related to LGBTQ residents, like the What is a Woman Act and others. And, you know, it's, it's quite a lot to keep track of, but I'm really glad we've got Maggie and David also taking a look at this session. So, so thank you, Maggie and David. And I, I look forward to talking with, with you guys throughout the session.
3: Thanks so much. Thank you, Chris.
0: That was K. H. Well and Wyoming Public Radio state government reporters Chris Clements and David Dudley and Wild Files Maggie Mullins talking about what lawmakers are up to during the 2024 legislative session. You can follow our ongoing political coverage by subscribing to the Cheyenne Roundup, a weekly look at the lawmaking session wherever you get your podcasts. The members of a comedy group in Jackson, Improv is more than just something to do after work. It's a family, and it's taught them valuable lessons about connection, bravery, and the importance of a good laugh. Wyoming Public Radio's Hannah Haberman takes us to a rehearsal.
1: Oh, oh oh you hear my fun who
4: has more fun than- On a Wednesday night in a church basement, nine members of the improv comedy troupe Laugh Staff dance in a circle as they practice a parody song. They're getting ready for their 15th anniversary show. Brian Lenz, who's been with Laugh Staff since the beginning, says some of their past shows have been on smaller stages at the Center for the Arts.
1: We're excited to be on the main stage. We haven't done a big main stage show ever.
4: Over the years, the group has built a consistent following. More often than not, their shows sell out. Len says they've watched their audience grow up too.
1: I remember one show, we gave autographs to a couple kids and signed their ball caps. And now they're, I think, out of college.
4: The group formed out of an improv class and has been joking together since. Founding member Nick Starin remembers the moment it clicked.
1: All of us looked around and were like, "We're pretty, we're pretty good. We should start performing." So we're very humble. We're very humble, humble, very humble.
4: And handsome and humble. And uh, and we did. We started that winter. The majority of the troop's current members joined early on and have stuck with it throughout the years. Nick's twin brother Chris says the crew has been through a lot together.
1: There can be days when you're embarrassed about something that happened at work or some tragedy that happens, and you can come together and you can throw it out there and we can have fun with it.
4: Improv comedy is all about making it up on the fly. Chris says it's healing.
1: Being an adult can be kind of lonely, and so this is a great way to be silly. It's rare as an adult to be silly, and it's so good for
4: the soul. Take, for example, the rhyming game, do Run Run." do ron Do-ron-ron-ron-do-ron-ron I asked her to go out and I gave her my pen do ron 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 do Everyone has to come up with a new rhyme in turn, all while singing and staying on beat. And if you repeat a rhyme, well, you're out. It's clear the troupe has improv together for years. They make fun of each other like siblings throughout rehearsal. But for two members, Laugh Staff has literally become their family.
3: I'm Kira Strom Griffith. I... Got involved with the laugh staff by selling beer and volunteering, and so they called me the beer wench.
4: Eventually, the troupe started inviting Strom Griffith up on stage to jump into scenes. Before long, she was a full-fledged member. At practice, she met Josh.
3: I'm kind of an awkward guy, (laughs) and I'm, I don't know. You just, you you need to have a good sense of humor to hang out with me, I guess. And Kira does have a good sense of humor, and she's just a very genuine laugher.
4: The two started clicking, On and off stage. Now, they're married and have two kids. For Josh, performing with Kira is one big metaphor for partnership.
3: We get to have these big ups and downs together on stage and then talk about them afterward and like sharing in each other's joys and sharing in each other's kind of failures, I guess.
4: Kira says that kind of connection and community is true of the whole Laugh Staff family.
3: One of the last things we all say to each other right before we step on stage is, I've got your back, and we all tap each other's backs.
4: One of the people they tap on the back is Roan Eastman. Eastman is the troupe's newest member and is a teacher at the local high school. He joined right before the pandemic to push himself out of his comfort zone.
1: My wife, who knows me well enough to know how to manipulate me, said, uh, bet you won't do it. And so here we are.
4: Eastman has a big, bushy beard and looks like he'd be right at home on a motorcycle. He'd never done improv before joining and immediately fell in love with it. For him, it's a type of meditation.
1: I'm someone who spends a fair amount of time in my own head, and you can't think doing improv. You just, If you think, then it ends up being dumb, and so it's just reacting.
4: Eastman loved being in theater and musicals as a kid, but anxiety around remembering his lines made him stop. Thanks to the unscriptedness of improv, he's now able to get back in touch with that part of himself.
1: I guess the biggest surprise was that People aren't as scary as we make them out to be. And improv definitely makes you comfortable with failing.
4: And that's all they hope for on their 15th anniversary that people will come and laugh. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Hannah
0: Haberman. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL, where we showcase reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every other Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Jackson Unpacked is generously sponsored by the Snake River Sporting Club. At nearly 1,000 acres, this private Western community accesses the Snake River and Bridger-Teton National Forest not to mention a golf course, equestrian center, and fully functioning ranch. More information about excursions, amenities, and lifestyle at snakeriversportingclub.com. River
2: long
3: were the nights when my days
0: around you? You're listening to Jackson Hole singer-songwriter Missy Joe in the k studios. You may also know her as Teton Music School teacher, Melissa Elliott. She recently put on a Taylor Swift tribute concert at the Center for the Arts. Here she's singing a Swift classic, Dear John. You can head over to 891k2l.org to hear more live music and interviews with local musicians and bands in our studio. And I lived in Thanks for tuning in to KHOL. I'm Hannah Mersbach. Shed hunting in Wyoming will look different this year. State lawmakers recently passed regulations giving residents a one week head start on some public lands. That includes popular antler gathering areas near Jackson and Pinedale. Wyoming Public Radio's Olivia Wheat spoke with Sam Maher, the lead researcher on the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem Antler Study, about who's coming out to hunt and what the change could mean for the state. What did you
5: find about who is the typical shed hunter? I'm wondering if you can paint a picture for us of
2: who's going out and spending hours trying to find
5: antlers in Wyoming
2: basically the the people who are doing this overlap um, a lot with people who are also hunting big game. So 90% of shed hunters are also hunters as well. And so it's this activity that you can do outside of the hunting season um, without a permit. Um, you can do it in a lot of different areas that gets people outside. Demographically, what we saw in our survey results were that shed hunters were overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male. I'm curious.
5: How many antlers are people finding when they're going shed hunting and what exactly are they doing with the antlers uh, after they find them?
2: It's highly variable how successful people are. And so part of this is because some people are going to put a lot more effort into it over the season. Um, And there's also a really big element of luck as well. And so what we found was that the average number of antlers that were picked up by Wyoming residents was 20 per year. But out of state residents that were coming into Wyoming to shed hunt were picking up up to 40 antlers a year. Um, And so the reason for this is that a lot of the out of state shed hunters were coming and putting a lot more effort into going into feed grounds and areas where there were really high concentrations of antlers. And so, what do people do with them? There's a couple of different uses pet chews has become a really popular industry for antlers. So those people who are selling antlers are often selling them um, to buyers and dealers that are going to um, saw them up for pet chews. Some people are using them for their own dogs themselves. Um, But we found that more than anything else, people were just keeping them for decor. Um, And so what this tells us is that people were really motivated just by The process um, of finding them by the hunt itself, um, and a little less so um, for the uses. There's also um, a cohort of antlers that go overseas and are used for medicinal purposes in East Asia. South Korea is the biggest market for it there. Um, But that's a relatively small use compared to people who are just keeping them personally for decor and for pet shoes.
5: Shed hunting in Wyoming is going to look different this year. The legislature passed a rule change where. In areas of the state where there is a season, Wyomingites are going to get a weak head start over non-state residents. And then um, those who are out of state will be required to pay to go shed hunting. I'm curious about uh, what your survey says about how that rule change uh, may impact the shed hunting season in Wyoming.
2: This will be really interesting to see what happens because one thing we found in the survey was that Wyoming residents had overwhelmingly changed their shed hunting behaviors and strategies um, to account for the fact that there was a lot of competition coming from outside of the state. So 93% of people had either shed hunted less or changed the locations where they did it. So when you take out this population um, from out of the state and they can't come in until seven days after um, the season opens for in-state residents, Um, It means that you might see people who had previously been avoiding feed grounds or previously um, avoiding certain sites or not going out right when the closures are lifted. Those people might be coming back in and kind of filling those gaps. So you could see just uh, an expansion in activities by in-state residents.
5: There's some people out there saying that these rule changes came from the perception that Lots of greedy, out-of-state people are coming into Wyoming and taking up all the antlers. In your survey, you looked at people's motivations for, for why the antler hunt. What did you find?
2: Yeah, I'm glad you're asking this because I think this is one of the most interesting results that we saw. Is um, It kind of pushes back against this narrative that out-of-state folks just want to collect and sell antlers and make a buck. And so what we found is there was actually no difference between in-state and out-of-state people to the degree to which they are selling antlers. Um, So 50% of in-state and 50% of -of out-of-state folks um, had sold antlers in the past, but overall only 20% of antlers that people found were actually getting sold on. And so we found that profit-seeking behavior actually played a much smaller role than we originally thought it would. And it didn't seem to be distinguishing Wyoming residents from out-of-state folks.
5: As the sport in Wyoming has gotten more popular, has there been more conflicts
2: between uh, ALR hunters and, and the state? We found that about 40 percent of people had either had a conflict or knew someone who had a conflict either with another shed hunter, um, with law enforcement or with a landowner. Um, but this can't tell us anything about whether or not those rates have increased over the years. You hear about it more, but that could just be that because shed hunting is becoming more popular, we're talking about it more frequently. Um, They have been enforcing um, some of the laws around antler collection um, more than they had been in the past. Um, They're known to track antlers. to to try to catch people who are picking them up outside of the season or in no-take areas. And then those people have been prosecuted and in a very public way. And so I think the hope there is that um, showing that, yes, we are enforcing these rules is going to prevent those conflicts in the future. But I've also heard that there is a fair amount of conflict between shed hunters in areas where there are high concentrations of antlers, but there's a lot of people out there at the same time. Um, you hear about people who will come into areas where antler removal um, is still illegal during the season closures and will stockpile antlers and then come remove them um, after May 1st when you're legally allowed to take antlers out. And so people will come across these stockpiles and be like, hey, something's not right here. Um, and I, I've heard stories about, you know, armed confrontations um, over this. But that at this point is just hearsay.
5: This is part one of a two-year survey. These are the preliminary results of your study. You're going to give the survey out again this year. Uh, The rule change goes into effect in May. I'm just curious what you anticipate finding this year as the rule change goes into effect.
2: One of the things we're going to ask is about enforcement. One of the big challenges of this is going to be enforcing the restrictions on out-of-state residents, especially during that seven-day head start period. We're going to ask people basically like, you know, have you encountered a warden in the field? Have you seen, you know, what what have you seen? We're interested again if we're gonna see Wyoming residents coming out of the woodwork, people who hadn't been shed hunting in the last couple of years because of the craziness associated with it. Are we gonna see them coming to big events like the Jackson opening? Or are we gonna see, you know, a paring down of you know, a thousand people at the the Jackson shed hunting opener to like, you know, 250 next year?
0: That was researcher Sam Marr talking about the impact new shed hunting rules could have in Wyoming. State residents can start looking for antlers in Jackson on May 1st. For the majority of Jacksonites, their main winter activities involve skiing or snowboarding. Though some have another sport to keep them busy, broomball, which has been kicking in the region for a quarter century. But as KHL's Erica Dalby reports, the Parks and Rec League almost didn't happen this year.
6: It's a bitter cold night at the Teton County Fairgrounds. About two dozen people have gathered to play broomball on the rodeo arena-turned-ice rink, risking frostbite and injury for the weekly league. Gary Duquette is wearing a ski helmet and baseball pads. He's practicing shots into the goal. The broomball veteran says the sport is ironically not played with brooms. Broomball is like hockey
1: with sneakers, with a lacrosse stick pushing a soccer
6: ball into a goal. Similar to the equipment, the rules of the game pull from a lot of sports. It's like controlled chaos on ice. Techniques include a shuffle, a prance, Sprint and a full body slide. None of which are graceful, according to another longtime player, Sam Fitz.
1: It's a goofy sport. I mean, you're running around on the ice without skates, and you can see the best athletes moving around and The ball goes in a different direction and everyone sort of looks like Wiley Coyote running down the road when he sees the roadrunner going the other way.
6: But tonight's game and the whole season were almost canceled due to low turnout.
1: There were some question marks rolling into the new year.
6: The sport used to be a lot more popular. Gary Duquette says back when he started playing almost 25 years ago, there were two leagues with almost 50 teams. This year, only four. I mean, it used to be like the biggest thing in the winter in Jackson. But the sport is still attracting some new players. Oh, I didn't know this was a sport. Natalie Kisa says she showed up to play for the first time with only a few hours notice. And I've already slipped on the ice fully. Despite that, Kisa says she's excited to get on the ice and have something to do after work with friends. And that a slippery playing field is the ultimate equalizer. For KHOL News, I'm Erica Dalby.
0: Broomball games kick off at the Teton County Fairgrounds every Tuesday and Thursday night, starting at six. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show comes from local band, Strumbucket. I'm Hannah Merzbach, and this is KHOL Jackson.